So let's pray together. Father, thank you for the way that you uh, bring together your body. Thank you, God, for the mysterious way that you move um, each of us into each other's uh, presence and relationships with one another, all because of our relationship with you. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much that uh, you planted us as members together uh, in the body. And so uh, thank you for all the ways that you work um, in little ways or big ways. Uh, it's just your work at, at you at work. Father, thank you now for this morning, for our session together. Uh, may you continue to uh, give uh, Blake the wisdom that he needs and the uh, boldness to preach it and to teach it as he does. In Jesus' name, amen. That I'm always uh, that way with students. I don't remember that incident at all. Um, but probably says more about his daughter than it does about me. You can't do that with all students. You know, some, some students always got a crisis in their family. And uh, so I'm, and I'm also grateful to your daughter for the invitation. <laughs> because it's been good for us to be here uh, in these days. Thank you. And thank you for coming back this morning for your attendance here. I remember going to a seminar where there was a, a nationally known speaker and author. And he was going to do three sessions, and I paid uh, a good bit of money to listen to this dude for these three sessions. And I was exceedingly disappointed when the entirety of the first session was a commercial about all the books that he had. Uh, and uh, I'll not mention his name because you would know it. Maybe you've been in that session too. So I don't want to do that, but I do want to tell you a story on two of the books that are back there and available, just so you know what you're getting. Uh, the book, Terry's Gift is not my usual writing. This is a novel, and it's my only, one and only, I think, God willing, attempt at novel writing. It is, it is my uh, conviction of what's going to happen in America if we continue on this notion of single-payer health care kinds of stuff. It's not a happy story. It's not a happy ending. It's not intended to be. It's my foray into politics and into uh, novel writing. But this is the book I want to tell you a story about, this little workbook called Beginning Again. My son is a pastor at Circleville First Church of Christ Christian Union uh, in Circleville, Ohio. That's Bradley that's running around with us this week's dad. And uh, he's the senior pastor there. They have a program uh, called Second Chance on Friday evenings. Uh, they invite their community, and they're in a very changing community, a drug-infested community, but First Church has been there forever, and they're going to stay there and continue to minister. And uh, so they have this Second Chance program, and uh, Second Chance is uh, a meal provided by the church, and then a program of somebody who got a second chance because of Jesus kind of thing. And so they go door to door in the neighborhood and say, hey, we're having dinner over at the church and a little program, and you're invited. It doesn't cost anything, and people are coming because they're hungry uh, originally, and they're coming because their kids are hungry. Now they're coming because, hmm, something's happened there. At any rate, uh, one Friday evening uh, at the invitation, a guy responded and gave his life to Jesus Christ. He was... Uh, they didn't know it at that time. They just knew they didn't, this guy wasn't churched. Uh, but he was uh, one of the leading drug dealers in Pickaway County, Ohio. In fact, I have heard the sheriff in Pickaway County say, uh, your son did more. He said to me, your son did more to take drugs off the streets in Pickaway County when he got that guy converted than anything we'd done for the last year. So Jesus did that. Jay knows that, and I know that, but it's cool. Anyway, that night, uh, after this young man made a uh, profession of faith, uh, Jay sat down with him and he began to share with him all the stuff that he'd learned to share with new converts when he went to Bible college. Uh, you know, you need to get a Bible and you need to start reading and I'd recommend you reading the Gospel of John and just read a little bit. Just, you know, you don't have to read a lot, but make a habit of it and pray every day and all, you know, all the stuff that we do and call it discipleship. And he got all done and he said to this fella, so are there any questions? And the boy said, uh, yeah, what's a Bible? I'm not talking about uh, third world. Well, it is kind of third world. Pickaway County, Ohio. 
uh, serious as a heart attack. He had no idea what Jay was talking about, a Bible, what's that? So my son called me and he said, Dad, I got another project for you. I said, what's that? And he said, I need you to write some discipleship material, except I need you to write it uh, more basic than you can possibly imagine. He said, you got to start with what's a Bible and then do the basics of what people might need. So we, in, in, a, in a very short period of time, I really believe the, the Spirit was involved in the writing. Uh, we did 10 weeks of basic discipleship, starting with go buy a Bible. You can find one at a bookstore, and you'll notice that it's got two main parts, an Old Testament, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's fill in the blank. And the way they have used it is they pair up uh, a more mature Christian with this new convert and they work through the Bible together or, or work through the 10 weeks together and talk about it. Do you have any questions? And you know, I've discovered this and that kind of stuff. But what I have discovered is I teach in a lot of United Methodist churches. I teach in a lot of uh, 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 churches where, uh, how do I say that? I'm one of them, okay? If you're one of them, don't be offended because I'm one of them. But in a lot of the churches where I teach, the Bible is just not paramount anymore in terms of the preaching and the teaching. And there are a lot of people who just don't know the stories of the Scripture, and they don't know the basics of the Scripture. And uh, so I have, I have discovered that a lot of these books are going to established Christians who say, if I ever was taught that, I sure forgot it. You know, I sold like 20 to a, a women's group in a, in a church in New Jersey. And they said, we don't know some of this stuff. We're going to use 10 weeks of programming out of here, that kind of thing. So anyway, all that not to, not to try to sell books, but just tell you a story of why that book, those two books are different than most of the stuff I do. Uh, and any of that stuff you can get on Amazon if you later decide you want to do a group. Uh, they're not as inexpensive as they are back there. That's pretty much just handling postage. But anyway, here we go. I want to introduce you to a guy. Uh, I want to introduce you to a fellow by the name of Ryan Jones. And Ryan Jones is a friend of mine who lives in Marion. He's an attender at College Wesleyan Church. Uh, he's a Taylor graduate, but I have come to the place where I don't hold that against him. He is, he is a bright fella. His wife and Nancy taught together. Nancy substitute teaches in a, church, in a school where, where uh, she teaches. They got a couple of kids that are just... They're just a really cool family. And I first met Ryan. I go to a men's breakfast on Wednesdays and another group on Thursdays. And one Thursday morning, Ryan was the speaker. And he did a devotional thing. And I had not met him before. He did a phenomenal job, really a good job. And afterwards, I introduced myself to him. We got more acquainted personally. And I discovered that Ryan was a financial advisor with Edward Jones. So he likes to introduce himself, and I like to introduce him to group. This is Ryan Jones of Edward Jones, no kin. <laughs> and so as time passed, and I began to get more confidence in Ryan, and uh, he did a good job of building relationships, kind of thing that we talked about yesterday, uh, Nancy and I transferred some of our retirement funds to his uh, umbrella, and he's doing a phenomenal job of managing those funds for us. But what I appreciate more, frankly, than the good job that he's doing managing those accounts is the way he's teaching me things about managing those accounts. I've learned so many things from him. I've learned the importance of, of balance in a portfolio. I, you know, I used to think, wow, that stock's really going up. I'm going to get into that, and then I'd lose a bunch of money and that kind of thing. And Ryan won't let me do that. He says, you know, I, your, your money, I'll do whatever you want, but here's what you need to think about. And so he's balanced things for us, and, and that's, that's really helping, and I'm understanding the importance of that. He's, in, he's teaching us the importance of long-term investment, uh, not to get scared, uh, when there's a correction, there's one coming, by the way, Ryan says, not to get scared when there's a correction and bail out because that's when you lose money. But you go in for the long haul and you say, okay, in five years this is all going to recover and I'm going to make more money and everything's going to be cool. Just that kind of stuff that he's teaching me. He's teaching me the, the, the mechanics, if you will, of investment and investing for the long haul. Now, what we've been doing is to establish that we can't do the kinds of things in this day and age in 21st century America that we've been doing and get the phenomenal results that we got in the 50s. Uh, the culture has changed. Uh, we are being marginalized. We're not in charge anymore. We're not in power anymore. So I've been asking myself, what kind of investments does a remnant need to make in order to be long-term successful. 
And remember, those of you who are just joining us, remember that uh, to bring you up to speed and for the rest of you to remember, what we're doing is looking at the Jews who were a remnant in Babylon. And we're saying this morning then, what did they invest in and how can I learn from them in terms of long-term investments? Investments of the remnant I've discovered are twofold. And I want to focus on two characters, two individuals who were a part of that original Babylonian remnant this morning and see if we can't learn from them where we ought to be investing as we're marginalized, where we ought to be focusing our time and our energy and our resources. Here's what I've learned. They invested in the next generation. Uh, they, they looked ahead. They looked to the future, and they were investing in the next generation. And I'm going to use a fellow by the name of Mordecai and what he did to help make that point. And secondly, they invested in effective prayer. There's a lot of prayer going on in the church today, some of which is effective and a lot of which is not. And I want to say more about that. I want to make a point, uh, and, and it's amazing to me. I indicated to you the other day how uh, I haven't seen Dave Imbrick forever, uh, but here we are uh, coming together, not comparing notes, and uh, our, our seminar is just meshing. You're going to see that this morning as I want to look at Nehemiah and the effective prayer that he offered in that first chapter that I believe set the stage for all that Dave is teaching. And he's doing a great job. You know, what a wonderful teaching on leadership. I have, you know, I've, I find myself wanting to hear, wanting to learn, and wanting to be here, and then needing to go and get my head on straight to come teach you and trying to balance that all out. But man, what I've been able to hear of it, just, just phenomenal stuff. So what we want to do then this morning is to look at uh, Mordecai as he invested in the next generation and Nehemiah and others as they invested in effective prayer and say to you, that's where our investments need to be, remnant. If we are the remnant or whether we're becoming a remnant, really irrelevant in this moment, this is where our, our investments need to be. First, Mordecai invested in the next generation. You remember the story of Mordecai? Mordecai was one of the people, uh, Esther chapter 2, verse 6, he was one of the people that came in the original uh, migration to Babylon. He was walking along that long trek to Babylon with Daniel and, and others uh, on his way. And Mordecai uh, came uh, to the land. We don't know why he didn't get a position in the palace like Daniel did, and like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and others. Uh, maybe he was too outspoken. I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe he had a position, but it just wasn't as important as some of the other things that happened in his life. But here's what we do know about Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai had a family member, uh, i.e. the conversation we had this morning, had a family member who died and left behind a young lady, a little girl. And we know that Mordecai stepped up to the plate on behalf of family and raised that little girl. Now, I'm going to refer... Uh, to that little girl as his niece and to him as Uncle Mordecai because that just makes sense to me. But here's the reality. We can't tell from the Hebrew word uh, that's translated there about the family relationship. I noted that uh, one of the newer translations is spelling that out a little more clearly that it was the daughter of his uncle uh, and so on. But uh, Hebrew scholars tell me, and I'm not one, I'm just quoting, but Hebrew scholars tell me that you can't tell from that word for sure what the family relationship is, whether it's a cousin or an uncle-niece relationship or whatever. So, but Uncle Mordecai, Uncle Mordecai took this little girl Esther to raise. And then something happened in the kingdom. You remember the story of Esther? You remember how uh, Vashti uh, displeased the king? And so the king set up this elaborate scheme to find somebody to take the queen's place. And I know I was in those Sunday school classes where they cleaned this whole thing up for us and made it palatable and made a beauty contest out of it. Uh, let me just say that it appears to me and to others who have more insight into this kind of story than I and into the language behind the story that this is sex trafficking at the imperial level. Uh, the one who most pleased the king would become the queen. Uh, 
you know, I I mentioned it. It's not important to what I want to teach this morning, but I mentioned it because can you imagine how that broke Uncle Mordecai's heart? I mean, here's here is now the emotion of not being in the center of authority, of being marginalized. The king says this is the way it is, and that's the way it is. Uh, we don't know anything about that yet. Uh, we believers in this country uh, don't know anything yet about that level of marginalization. To have a child taken from us and used and abused that way because it pleases those who are in authority. God help us, I hope we never experienced those kinds of atrocities. But Mordecai did. And then as Esther became the queen, you remember again from Sunday school, and a fellow by the name of Haman uh, has a plot that he's going to uh, eliminate all the Jews. I'm in the fourth chapter now of the book of Esther, and Uncle Mordecai uh, doesn't get invited into the palace, so he's sitting outside uh, the palace gates, and Queen Esther is uh, <clears throat> wondering what's going to happen because this evil plot to eliminate and destroy the Jews. And so she does just what seems natural to her because Uncle Mordecai has invested so much in her. He's done so much mentoring that when push comes to shove, she's not going to check out with the king or with the, the people who are, who are the king's advisors. She's going to check it out with Uncle Mordecai. She's going to check with Uncle Mordecai and see what to do. In, in chapter 4, look at verse 8. Mordecai uh, wrote a copy, gave a copy of the decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And uh, when Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said, then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king for 30 days. So here's the scenario. There's a national tragedy of those who have been marginalized. Those who are on the fringes, the, the people of Israel in the kingdom, uh, there's a national tragedy coming. A law has been passed to just eliminate them. And Uncle Mordecai says, Honey, Esther, you have more opportunity to do something about this uh, than anybody I know. And Esther says, Uncle Mordecai, what am I going to do? I, I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to do. But I know this. Listen between the lines. I know this. You've never given me bad advice, Uncle Mordecai. You've invested your life in my life. I trust you. You've, you've mentored me. I trust you. What do you think I should do? Verse 12. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Listen to this. This is, this is in powerful stuff in several levels. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all the other Jews. But if you keep silent at a time like this, listen to his confidence. Relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Do you hear Uncle Mordecai's confidence in what it means to be part of God's chosen people? If you don't do something, Queen Esther, deliverance will come from another area. It says in some of the translations. Let me just make, I've, I've bordered so close to politics all week. Won't matter if I make one more political statement. I'm not going to offend the wrong person. I, if I do, for, just forgive me. God chose the people of Israel and he does not revoke his choices. And my country, I pray, will be on the side of Israel till the very end. As I look in the book, I'm, I'm concerned that that won't be the case as I look at the prophetic utterances. But I'm going to do all I can in my power and in my authority to, to keep people in office who will support God's people even if they don't know God. Does that make sense? End of political statement. But you and your father's house will perish. I'm in 14. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such, such a time as this. Man, I love that verse. Just such a time. You've come to this moment just for such a time as this. 
I got to tell you, I was so impressed with Dave on, on uh, Sunday night telling us that he understood the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, and I need to find a time over lunch to get him to teach me because I'm telling you, I'm still learning about the sovereignty of God. I don't understand it. I, I, can't, I can't comprehend it. I can't fathom it. I believe it, but I'd like to be able to cognitively understand it. You know what I'm saying? The sovereignty of God. I, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt, and I, I wish sharing with, with Kevin and Elvira over lunch the other day some of the things that <laughs> some of the things that God has done in Nancy's and my life over the last year that convince us absolutely that God's in charge, the sovereignty of God. Uh, you know, that I, I get a sabbatical that I think is going to be for study and it ends up being to minister to my wife as she's uh, in the midst of another battle with cancer. Or uh, I get an opportunity to come to Bayshore and I think it's about teaching. And I'm now convinced it's not just about teaching, but it's about getting me out of a family structure so my daughter, who's a lot calmer in those kind of situations than me, can take care of things and make it work right. I, I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I'm still seeing it and, and, uh, and trying to understand it cognitively. Uh, Mordecai had it down. Who knows, Esther, you may be the queen for just this moment. All that pain and hurt and heartache that I went through when they took you out of the house and brought you to the palace. Maybe it's because God's got a plan. And maybe God's plan is now unfolding. Isn't that a beautiful attitude on the part of a Mordecai? Then Esther told them to go reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and don't eat or drink for three days or nights. I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I'll go to the king, though it's against the law. And listen to this attitude, if I perish, I perish. Where did she get that attitude? She got that attitude from the years and years and years of mentoring that Uncle Mordecai poured into her life. She got that attitude because Uncle Mordecai said, Honey, this is the only way I see to solve this problem. You've got to put your life on the line. You've got to be all in. You've got to go 100%. And she said, I, I, Okay, Uncle Mordecai, you've never led me. I want to ask you, who in the next generation trust you to that level who is there in the next generation that would say okay Aunt Jane Uncle Kevin whatever if, that, if that's the way it is, if that's what you say then I'll do it because I trust you because you've never let me down I want to talk to you just briefly on this point about ways to invest in the next generation uh, that's, that's the scriptural part of this point. Let's just get real practical now. How do we invest in the next generation? Let me suggest some ways to you. One way is to mentor a youngster. Anybody familiar with the Kids Hope USA program? Anybody in your church involved? Thank you, great. Are you in a program? No? You know about it. Anybody whose church is doing Kids Hope USA? No? Is it legal in Michigan? What's wrong with you people? No, let me tell you how, quick, how bad, how poorly I came to Kids Hope USA. First, what is Kids Hope USA? Kids Hope USA is a national program that matches up a local church with a particular local school. And then that local school gives at-risk kids an hour with, that, with a mentor from that local church. And we don't go into the churches, we don't go into the schools to, to preach Jesus or to violate the law. We just go into the school in order to help a kid learn, maybe read with them or help them to read. Uh, we try to end up with enough time left in our hour to play a game and have some fun. Uh, we end up building relationships with the kids where in many cases, kids then are saying, can I go to church with you on Sunday? because they know that's an important thing. And in the local church that I was a part of that was doing Kids Hope USA, we had parties at the church on the weekend and said, you can come if you want to. It's not part of Kids Hope, but you're welcome. And lives were changed. The kids who are partnered with the mentors are what the school calls at-risk kids. And they define those at-risk kids. But what we've discovered is that many times they come from homes with one parent. They come from homes uh, where uh, neither of their biological parents are present, but they're, they're a result of serial polygamy, and uh, they're living with their dad's ex-girlfriend kind of a thing, that kind of thing. At any rate, I came to Kids Hope USA kicking and screaming. I was pastoring a church at Van Buren, Indiana, and uh, somebody came up with this, found the information about it, and said, we ought to do this, preacher. And I said, you know, I think we got enough programs 
we don't need any more programs. Let's, let's, let's just do what we're doing well and, and not be looking for other programs. And so some of my people just kept saying, and I looked at it and I thought, man, you know, you know every, every mentor's got to have a prayer partner and then there's got to be somebody to oversee this whole process and a, a director, if you will, and it's going to take a lot of people, a lot of administrative time. I just wasn't moved. And, uh, but they kept coming. And finally, there was a guy, he was a retired high school principal, and he had become a good friend of mine so that he could tell me when I was wrong. And he said to me one morning, Blake, you got it wrong on this. And I'm so sure that if you'll let us take a chance on it, I will be the director. I'll recruit the people. You don't have to do anything except bless it. And I said, I bless it. And he was so right. I mean, that pro I ended up with a church about 120 people at Van Buren when I left there, and more than three-fourths of them were in some way involved in Kids Hope USA, either mentoring a kid or, or being a prayer partner, praying the hour that that kid was being mentored, or some of the other kinds of stuff. That was, it was phenomenal. But what's important for our purposes this morning is young people were seeing an adult, and I, some of us don't have categories for this, but some of you who work in public school situations do. Young people were seeing an adult that cared about them. Cared about them so much to give them an hour. And they don't have, many of these kids don't have anybody in their lives who will give them a whole hour uninterrupted. You could mentor a youngster. That's to invest in the next generation. Or bug your preacher like your pastor, like my people bug me, until you become a church that's involved in Kids Hope USA. By the way, there's nothing magic about Kids Hope USA. What they do, they do take a fee uh, for, for guiding your church. What I liked about it is they also have a legal team so that if somebody in your congregation gets into difficulty as a result of working in the local schools, you've got some support network there. But you can do the same thing in your community without them. You know, sit down with the school and say, we got 10 people. We promise not to preach. We just want to help kids by spending an hour with them. Can we do it? And the key to success, I think, the key to success, Nancy knows more about it. She was hands-on with it. I just kind of watched it. But it seems to me the key to success was that one-on-one matchup. I'm going to be that kid's mentor all school year long, no matter how that kid behaves or what that kid says. I'm showing up for an hour to be available to him or her. And uh, many times it took uh, uh, well into the school year before those kids began to accept and receive that because they've never experienced it before. Second, those of you who are still and working on a daily basis, aren't there younger co-workers that you could just set up a weekly or a monthly luncheon with and just talk to them about their job? Couldn't you invest in the next generation by caring enough about the next generation of workers to spend some time with them? You know, I'm discovering that there are people uh, in the workplace, there are people in our culture, in our society, that, that want to talk to people like me, people in my age. Gray hair still makes a difference to some of them, even though I don't see it as much in our culture as it is in some other cultures. They, they're interested. What, what do you all think? What are you all doing about this? How about writing encouragement to a high school student? I bet in your small town or wherever it is that you come from, you get a newspaper that has local school sports. And my guess is that there are kids named there who are outstanding athletes or who got a superior at the music contest or for whatever reason their name appears in the paper as really excelling at something. Why don't you write them a note of thanks or a note of encouragement? Say, I saw in the paper where, where you guys beat that other team last week and you had the, you were the high score. I just want to tell you, people out here in the community are watching and we care about that and, and we're, we're grateful for that. Now, somebody said to me, how am I going to get their addresses? All I see is a name in the paper. And here's what we learned, that if you send a note to the local high school, to that individual in care of the local high school, there may be somebody in administration who has to open it and make sure what it is that you're communicating but they will pass it on in most cases. So you don't have to know that kid's individual address, probably just as well not to, uh, although many of you in small towns know everybody in every place and all, you can, you can find them. 
just encourage them in the things that they're interested in. See, a lot of times we think the only way I'm going to make a difference for Jesus in the next generation is if I convince that kid to be interested in the things I'm interested in, i.e. the kingdom of God. But I'm talking about what we sh where we ended last time. Build a personal relationship. Be interested in what that youngster is interested in. And over time, perhaps, he or she will get interested in what you're interested in. So, write a note of encouragement uh, to a high school athlete or a high school uh, special. You know, you say you believe in marriage, and marriage is between one man and one woman. Do they still put marriage announcements in your local paper? Then send them a card or a gift and say, thank you for standing for marriage. Thank you for getting married. Chances are they've been living together for about a year or two or three. You don't have to address that. You just say, thank you. I believe in marriage. Marriage has been important to me. I've been married for 43 years, and it's been a blessed institution. And I'm so grateful that you're getting married. Congratulations. Here's 20 bucks, or whatever you want to do, or however you see that. But you don't have to know them personally. Build a personal relationship by virtue of the fact that they're doing something that you can applaud. Share remembrances with your grandchildren. I found a I guess it's a unique way. I, my grandkids are scattered. I have uh, five grandkids living right now in Scotland, although they're career missionaries with World Gospel Mission, and they are permanently assigned to Uganda. They're in Scotland right now because my son-in-law is working on a Ph.D. at the University of Edinburgh. So I don't get to see those kids very often. Five of my 11 grandkids in Scotland, and we see them once every two or three years. And then I've got uh, four more who are living in Northwest Ohio. Uh, Ron is a district superintendent for the Evangelical Church for Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. And uh, they're busy and they're active. And more importantly, they're two hours drive away from us. So it's really hard just to run up there and say, Grandpa came because he wants to tell you a story. Uh, you know, we just, we just don't do that. We tend to have marathon kinds of time. And then Bradley, who's with us, and his sister are... Uh, about three and a half hours from us. And as I already indicated, his dad's a pastor. They're busy. They don't come to our house very often. And we find as much time as possible to go there. But, you know, I don't get to see my grandkids very often. Bottom line. So I came up with this idea. And I, I write a, a regular newsletter that we call the Spotlight. And in the spotlight, I just tell them, here's what I'm hearing from the kids over in Scotland. Here's what I'm hearing from the kids. And, you know, just kind of a, a news exchange that they get. And I try to, in all that to, to highlight one particular remembrance. I remember when I was a kid and I got to ride the train to my great-grandpa's house who lived in Whitley, Indiana. And here's the kinds of things we did back. And here's the way Papa behaved because they never knew him and so on. And my kids tell me it's a, it's a hit. That when the mail comes, the kids go, wow, Grandpa's newspaper's here. And they all sit down and take an hour off and, and read it. And we try to put some activities in there uh, for the younger kids. Just an idea. Find an idea that works for you. This one's kind of wearing out, frankly, at my house because we just have, I'm out of remembrances. I don't know what else to tell them. And it's been a busy summer and so on. But every once in a while, one of them will call and say, hey, Pat. How come we haven't had a spotlight for a while? So I know it's working. I just need to get back in a regular routine. You can read at a daycare or an elementary school. Elementary teachers tell me, and someone here may, may want to testify, but they tell me that one of the difficult things in the way schools are structured now is to have the kind of one-on-one -on -one time that really helps kids to be successful that they just don't have time to sit down with a child who may be struggling with reading and listen to that child read or read to them or help them sound out words and those kind of things. Now, here's the new reality. You've been marginalized. You're probably, if you show up at the local elementary school and say, I want to work with some kids and help them read, the first thing you're going to say is go get a background check. So go get a background check. You know, I had to jump hoops to be in ministry. Before I got ordained, I had to do all kinds of stuff the Board of Ordained Ministry said to do. That's what it takes. Go get the background check and take it in. Or if you can't afford the background check, find somebody that will help you and say, I want to be a missionary to the school. And when you get there, follow the rules. You're not going there to preach Jesus. You're going there to build a relationship and to help a kid learn. You're going there to invest in the next generation. That's what Mordecai did. Every time Mordecai sat down with Esther, it wasn't to tell him about how cool the Jewish people were. He sat down with Esther to teach her about life. 
and how he saw life and how his worldview affected life. And when it came time for that worldview to be put on the spot, on the line, she said, Uncle Mordecai, what do I do? And if I perish, I perish. Host a neighborhood kids club. You need to be careful with this one in these days, but I'm not ready to give this up just quite yet. My wife will tell you the story of how a neighborhood kids club, uh, what's the lady's name? Lucille Reese. Lucille Reese, Oakwood, Ohio, uh, had a, a house, lived right across from the school where Nancy was growing up. And once a week after school, she had the happy hour. And they all went over and heard a Bible story, and it changed Nancy's life. Now, you've got to be super careful with that in this day and age. I would suggest you not take this one on by yourself. Have two or three or four people work together. Go ahead and get a background check because somebody's going to ask you for it at some point. I, I don't blame them. I got kids and grandkids. I want to know who you are, too, before my kids spend an hour at your house for the happy hour. Or find a way to do that in some kind of a public set, setting or forum. But, but there's no law against preaching Jesus on private property for voluntary kids. You see what I'm saying? So why not host a neighborhood club? I don't know how many of you might live within 20 miles of a college or university, but I work with these people a lot, and I know they are starved to death by mid-October for a real home and a real family. Uh, the idea is, this boy says, I'm not sure if I really miss my family or I just want real food, but by the way, the food at Indiana Westland is excellent, and I don't let them put up with I just don't put up with that nonsense of complaining about the groceries. But the truth of it is they just want to set in a home environment. We invite kids over and find out they really don't care about interacting so much with us. They just want to set in our living room, set in our family room because they miss home. And uh, invite folks over for Sunday dinner. Invite college students if you work in or live in that kind of an environment and thereby build a relationship. And as you build that relationship, it gives you an opportunity to invest in the next generation. It's not an overnight. You're not going to have them walk out and say, wow, you know, I trust you with my whole life, like Esther eventually did with Mordecai. You've got you to spend some time. You've got to work at it. Uh, but over time, it makes a difference. I want to talk to people my age and older, and the rest of you, those of you who are still raising kids and struggling to pay for a house and some of those kinds of things. Just, just take a break. I want to talk to people my age and older. By and large, we have made it. And have you noticed that when you go to the restaurant, the people who are serving you are people who are still struggling to make it? Shame on you for leaving a buck tip on a $20 bill. Uh, those, those people are a part of the up-and-coming generation who work. And how many times have you sat down with your peers and talked about how those kids just won't work today? Like They don't understand what real work is. Well, you know, what, what are they seeing as a reward? Your dollar tip on a $20 ticket. And so I've come to the place where in my spirit, I believe if I can't afford to leave a generous tip, I can't afford to eat out. And I've had so much fun with kids coming back and saying, thank you, this Sunday noon crowd is tough and I don't usually get these kind of tips. Or more than that, you know, it doesn't have to be a lot of money. Some, some of you who are younger and I excluded from this little mini lecture can even play this game. Have you ever given the kid who makes a Subway sandwich a buck for making your sandwich? And saying, wow, you're a real artist, just like it says on TV. I mean, I've seen them just light up. I'm not going to develop a personal relationship with the waiter. I understand that. But it's one way when they watch me have prayer before I eat, when they, show me, when they see me showing up in a tie and a collared shirt on Sunday noon, they know what I represent. They know who I'm a part of. And if I'm an El Cheapo, they get that kind of a, of a mentality. Yes, ma'am. In addition to that, Ask them what, when you're getting ready to pray, pray over your meal, ask them, what can I pray for you about? That's cool. Good. Thank you. Yeah. We'll get, that's wonderful. Or uh, I remember hearing about, a, uh, my son-in-law, I think, did this overseas someplace. Anyway, 
when the wait, waiter or waitress came and sat down the meal and said, can I get you anything else? Well, you know, if you're really interested, you want to offer grace? Uh, that's probably not a good idea. <laughs> probably not a good idea. But look, it's kind of a mini relationship out of, a, out of long-term time. You get, you get an hour with these folks or 45 minutes or 10 minutes if you're in line at Subway. But build an appropriate relationship during that time. And for some of us, you know, I didn't think about it until somebody who was in our generation, my generation, began to point it out to me that I don't have to tip the way I did 20 years ago. I, I, I can do better than that. And I can reward young people for, for their work. Think about it. Pray about it. How about getting a younger prayer partner? Yeah, I, I went through the car wash in, my car doesn't look like it now, but I went through the car wash in, uh, in Marion just before we came up here, and I, I gave the kid a couple bucks to put in the tip bucket and uh, just visited with him, and he commented, he said, you know what, a lot of people come through here, they just, they just treat me like, his word now, they just treat me like crap. He said, thanks for acting like I'm a real person. He said, oh, that's his word. Like, for, for two bucks, I get that. You know, and so we went a little further in the relationship. He opened the door. He gave me a possibility. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And, you know, some, somebody who's sitting here saying, I don't have two bucks for the car. Then you're off the hook on this one. But be honest with yourself. Evaluate a little bit and make sure you really don't. How about gaining a younger prayer partner? You got a prayer partner in your church? Or does your church have some kind of a prayer program where they match you up with somebody? Why do we always do that generationally? Why don't we begin to do that intergenerationally? And why don't you view it when they, when they give you a 12-year-old to be your prayer partner instead of viewing it as, oh, I'm going to teach this kid how to pray. Treat that individual like you would another prayer partner. What do you want to pray about? Let, here's what I'm worried about. Here's what I'm thinking about. Let's pray together. You pray, then I'll pray. And you know, the teaching, the mentoring happens automatically if you just treat people like folks. And I'm suggesting that one of the things that needs to happen is that those of us, uh, well, really whatever generation you're in, uh, because even, even, if you're, even if you're a high school student in the room, uh, there are junior high kids who are looking to you and saying, that guy is really, there's, there's only four-year generations at colleges and high schools. You know, fresh, freshman to senior is a big deal. And there are four-year generations. So all of us, all of us can do these kinds of things as ways to invest in the next generation. What I'd like to do, those are, those are ten ways that I have discovered. Some of them I've practiced. Some of them I talked about, and I'm excited because a couple of you have already gotten involved in what we want to do. Uh, but uh, Kevin's going to be available with the microphone. Share with us some other ways to invest in the next generation. How, how did Mordecai do it? We don't really know the details of that, but we know it made a tremendous difference. Saved a nation. Saved a nation because he invested in the next generation. And I got to believe that maybe from the fringes, from the margins... He said, there's not much I can do, but I'm sure going to invest in this kid, in this one young lady. I'm going to make a difference in her life. What are you doing? What have you seen done? What's the Lord saying to you that you need to speak to the rest of us about in terms of investing in the next generation? Go. Well, there's, is it on? Right into it? No. Hello. Hello, 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 hello. Now you're on. Okay. Um, well, there's actually two things I do, so I'll go quick. One is at the holidays. The people who check me out at Meyer or wherever, you get to know them, and the gas station and everything, where I get your coffee or the Starbucks, whatever. I just buy a Hershey bar. It's so generic. Everybody loves a Hershey bar. And then, you know, they hand it to you because they think you want to put it in your purse. And then when you're all done, I just say, Merry Christmas, and they, they don't know what to do. 
and I'll say, you know what? It's Jesus' birthday. I like to celebrate. There you, you go. Know? And so I give them their... So you, f- you find a way even to build a witness into the affecting yeah, the next generation. Yeah, I just great. say, you know what? It's a great time of year. Wonderful. And then the other thing is, um, our kids went to a charter school, so they didn't have a cafeteria. They ate at their desks, and so I don't know if it works. But for all three kids... Oh, I'm sorry. For all three kids, um, they went to a charter school, so they sat at their desk for lunch. They didn't have a cafeteria. But I would go in one day a week and tell stories, generational stories, about my grandma and my this and my that. Good. And just, um, and I'd say, you can't believe it. The TV was black and white. Can you believe it? Like, the the channel didn't come in. And she was in love with Chet Huntley. Very good. Thank you. That's the kind of thing I wanted to hear. Back there's one. He knows how to get the next generation. Hold the microphone close to your mouth as you're able. Um, sometimes it doesn't work out because I'm dealing with a person that is a uh, business person that uh, has various activities come up and sometimes we're gone. But I meet with a young man, one generation younger than me, that's in business for himself. For one hour, we meet at 7 o'clock in the morning before he opens his business. And uh, we just start in the book of John and start reading it. And believe it, we haven't gotten very far at all because it just leads to all kinds of conversation, all kinds of questions, back into the Old Testament on certain things, on Bible stories that he didn't even know anything about. Was this somebody from your church that you built? No. Well, he he comes occasionally, but he was raised in another another church. You suggested this get-together time, and he was open to it? We have a a, a friend that knows him very, very well, and and some time ago asked me just to start praying for him. Well, then that led me to ask him to, if, if he would want to meet. And surprisingly, he just said yes. He says, Wonderful. I'd like to do that. That's, and, uh, that's great. He looks forward to him, and so do I. Very good. Oh, wait, over here. Hey, this, this guy's hand was up, or we'll get you in to fly, however you want to. Kevin. This kind of came about uh, backhandedly. Uh, I drive a, a car that has um, running magnets all over the back and a license plate that says one belief on it. So everybody knows who I am. Uh, doesn't matter where I go. Well, I, almost every day I go through the Tim Hortons drive-through, and I get a coffee and a donut. And I decided one day there was a lady behind me who looked like she was losing her mind. And I said, "How much is the lady behind me?" And I paid for her. And she got such a kick out of somebody buying her a dollar ninety-two coffee that. Um, and I came back the next day and I said, "I'm going to do it again." And she says, thank you so much. Do you know that it changed the attitude of everybody in line for the whole day? It made our job so easy. So after a while, my daughter was with me, and I came up, and I said, good morning. And they said, medium coffee, two cream, one sugar, and a plain donut? And I said, yeah. She says, oh, everybody knows you. (laughs) And I'm just surprised at at how little $1.90 changed the dynamic uh, of, a, of a whole area and uh, everybody in the store. Absolutely perfect. Exactly the kind of thing we want to hear about. You had one. This isn't a story, but I do work in a school. I'm a teacher. And I just, I, when you hear background check, if you're not in education, it might sound a little overwhelming. All it simply means is, um, like when we have people that go on a field trip, we need a background check. You just give your license to the central office, and they just make a copy of it. So if you're like, oh, I'd like to do that, but I don't need to get fingerprinted, and I don't want to have to go through a whole rigmarole. But actually, it's just pretty simple. I just want Pretty to, simple. Do they charge you for that in your no, school? No, not at all. Because school district must be paying the bill. Um, or maybe they don't charge admission. Yeah, I don't think so. They just goes to our central office. They take a copy, and you have to you know, give them a couple. I don't know how much time, but it's not very much time. I think it's, <clears throat> is it 20 bucks now in Indiana? You, you remember? I think. I, listen, one more, one more. Right here's one. Right, right well, they're a pair. Okay. Where am I going? They're a pair. Okay, you guys gonna get along today? All right. Yeah. So I was just gonna say one of those things on the list I do. Um, as most of you know, I'm into basketball um, a lot, and. Um, there are a couple of kids at the local high school that um, I talk to, um, actually more about life advice. Um, and, you know, I also talk to them about, you know, they ask me about the basketball. And a lot of them now come to me and ask me, you know, what do I think? And they come to me because 
I am, as y'all know now, I'm brutally honest with them. So I tell them their strengths and their weaknesses and what they need to work on. They actually appreciate that. Yeah. So I already do that as far as the high school, local high school athletes right. that I deal with. Good. Last one. Two of those young men are brothers, and they're from Jamaica, and they live on the street over from us, one block south. They lost their mother recently. They're both in their 20s now, grown men. And the mom was the core of their life for, for all of the family, and dad still lives in Jamaica. So now these guys are kind of without anybody. So at the funeral afterwards, after the service, um, I actually got to talk to the, the pastor of their church, their seventh day of Venice, of course, they're Jamaican, and asked them if, if the boys have been coming to church, and he said no. And so I, what I've decided to do is um, have them over for dinner one night a month, one Friday night a month, wow. some, just one night a month and have them over. And I went to each of them individually, and they were like, yeah, we'd love that. So that's something else you can do. If you find out that, uh, that young people have been recently orphaned for some reason, invite them over for your, to your house for dinner, just one night a month. Very good. All right, you get the idea. And I hope you also get the notion that it's not just one old man who thinks we ought to be investing in the next generation. It's Mordecai, it's Blake, and it's several people in this room. It's not against the law. We're being marginalized. You can't have the influence from the center that once you had. And so what did the original remnant do? They began to invest in the next generation. Second thing they began to do was to invest in effective prayer. They invested in effective prayer. Uh, De, uh, what's his name? Diablo, whatever, whoever the preacher is. Anyway, Dave. <laughs> Dave. <laughs> oh, dear. Probably cost me more than the sale of a couple of books now. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, he's been talking to us about the mechanics of, of Nehemiah's leadership. Here's what Nehemiah accomplished. He built two and a half miles of wall at an average height of 40 feet and a thickness of 8 feet. He did that with 34 watchtowers, 8 gates, ten, within 10 months. Within 10 months of hearing about the problem. Now, Dave's been teaching us how he accomplished that. 52 days after he got on the scene... The wall was complete, and they began planning the dedication ceremony. That's phenomenal. And as, as Dave Embrick's been teaching us, that's got a lot to do with his leadership skills. But I want to point out that the very first chapter of the book of Nehemiah, beginning with verse 4, all the way through the last word, or up to the last sentence of the chapter, is a prayer. What did he do when he heard about the problem? Dave taught us the other day he got a tremendous burden and he took that burden to the Lord in prayer. I think a lot of his accomplishment, and I'm not arguing with what he's teaching us about his skills. I, I believe and love the practical part of what he's doing there. I think a lot of the reason for Nehemiah's success was that he began with an effective prayer. That prayer is in Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning with verse 4, and running through the remainder of the chapter. Now, I'm not going to take time to read it, but I want to just highlight some things in it for you. Nehemiah prayed what I, I like to call the acts of prayer. First is adoration. The main focus of his prayers in verse 5. And in verse 5, he doesn't start out like you and I sometimes start out with our prayer, like God is some kind of a cosmic Santa Claus. Oh Lord, I heard the walls are in ruins, so help me, I'm going to get the walls built. No, he starts with remembering who God is and adoring God and praising God. The first segment, major segment, first quarter of his prayer is reminding himself and reminding God, O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandment. God, you've been faithful before. That's what he's saying. I tell you, when I, when I relearned this acts of prayer and began to redo my morning prayers around the acts, what I discovered helps keep me on target is to remember the attributes of God. I pray to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit and I pray their attributes. Great and powerful God, creator God, 
who brought the whole world into existence by his word. Those kinds of things. And then I move to the son, Jesus who left the streets of gold for the dusty streets of Jerusalem. Jesus who laid down his life so that I might live. And then I pray and remember that the Holy Spirit in every single instant brings order out of chaos. What we blame on the Holy Spirit in the church oftentimes today is awful. The reality is we're blaming chaos on the Spirit. But when the Spirit came in, in the Scripture all the way from the beginning and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, the Spirit always brings order out of chaos. And so I try to, in this prayer of adoration, just thank God for who God is. That's the key to adoration. The second element of Nehemiah's prayer is confession. Beginning in verse 6 and going on down through verse 7, he confesses, look, Nehemiah didn't do anything. He's not really personally responsible, and yet he prays as if he were. He confesses the sins of the nation. What would happen, and this is where I was trying to go uh, the first session, and some of us got hung up on, on whether or not we're really being exiled. Listen, what would happen if you and I would begin to confess the sins of America as if they were our own sins? What if we claim ownership over what's happening in America? What if we recognize that we failed to be an obedient church and we pray and ask God to forgive us for not being salt and light like he commanded us to? That's what Nehemiah did. Then he prayed a prayer of thanksgiving, verses 8 through 10. Isn't it interesting? He hasn't mentioned the wall yet. The difference, by the way, between adoration and thanksgiving, in adoration, you thank God for who God is. In adoration, you thank God for who God, what God has done. And most of us, if we use any of this at all, want to go immediately to thanking God for what He's done for us. God, you've been good to me. You've done this and this and this and this and this. That's step three. Channel your thinking. Channel your praying. Be effective in your prayer by first praising God for who God is. God is good all the time, even if you don't get what you want. God is not a great cosmic Santa Claus that is doling out the presents to people who pray. God is the sovereign God, King of the universe. And when we remember that, and then we can, what happens, by the way, in confession, when I think about who God is, Confession comes pretty naturally, pretty spontaneously. I'm guilty, and so are many of you in this room, of comparing myself to other people and saying, I'm doing okay. I'm not bad. You know, I, I, I feel pretty good about me. But when I sit in the presence of a sovereign God and remember who God is, then I recognize what a worm I am. Many of the old hymn writers recognize that, by the way. And as we get further and further from the old hymns of the church, we lose some of this con consistency that is part of Nehemiah's prayer. And finally, after ten, uh, excuse me, five verses of prayer, finally we get to the last portion of the prayer, which is called supplication, a fancy word for the ask. Fancy word for the ask, and it's there in verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's talking about the king. Give me success today, Lord. Isn't it interesting? I don't know about you, but I'm oftentimes guilty of telling God what success would look like. Lord, get me a whole caravan of lumber and, and the time off to go over to Jerusalem and build the walls. Because once I get that wall built, Lord, then I'll know that I'm successful and I'll know that you are God. And Nehemiah's prayer is, Lord, you are a great God above all gods and I confess I'm nothing beside you and you have been consistently in my camp and given me great things. So do what you think is best about this wall. Here's what I've learned as I've attempted in, in my morning devotions to pray the acts of prayer. I've discovered that I get to the end of my prayer and sometimes I can just pray a name. I used to pray fervently for my son who's a pastor because I know something of the trials and the pressures and the difficulties of being a pastor. 
And so I'd pray about people treating him right and I'd pray about him getting a good sermon for Sunday and I'd pray about all this stuff working out. And now what I can do is to adore God for who God is, confess my own personal sins in not bringing that boy up as well as I might have, thank God for the fact that he's healed him, that he's saved him, that he's working in his life, that he's called him to ministry. And then all I have to do is remember Jay today, Jesus, because I can trust him. Do you see, the, I, I, I don't know how words are failing me. I pride myself in communication and I'm not being able to do it. Is it making sense? Do you see the difference in these prayers? And this kind of effective prayer changes the prayer, the one who prays. Uh, Nancy will tell you that my devotional life has changed the way I am as a husband. My students will tell you that my devotional life in the last couple of years has changed the way I am as a, as a professor, as a friend in the classroom. And the reality is that is because of this kind of thing, of, of learning to pray more effectively. We find effective prayer in, in Daniel too. In a, in a couple of, in Daniel chapter 3, uh, we find, is that right? Chapter 2, yeah. Chapter 6, excuse me. Daniel chapter 6. Daniel's now an old man. And a long, long ways from where we saw him yesterday when uh, he didn't want to eat the king's groceries and so he had to come up with some alternative plans. Now in chapter 6, he's an old man, been advisor to the king for a long time and the king even appreciates him. He's still part of the marginalized group but he's earned earned the respect of the king. But some of his political enemies create a situation where Daniel is only going to be caught if we can figure out a way to get between him and his God. And so they pass a law that if you pray to anybody except the king, uh, you ought to go uh, to the lion's den. And Daniel, it's, it's exciting. Read over there in chapter 6 when you get a chance. I need to hurry. But when you get a chance, read in chapter 6. What does Daniel do? Same thing he's been doing. He just goes home and leans out the window probably towards Jerusalem because he's a good Jewish boy, praying toward Jerusalem uh, every time and uh, doesn't pay attention to that law. And so the, tra- the, the, the guys that built the trap say, what about uh, Daniel King? Huh? You made a law and he's praying. And we saw him praying outside the window, praying towards Jerusalem. I bet he's not praying to you, O King. And the king is trapped. He doesn't want to do anything. He, he appreciates Daniel. Daniel's earned, earned a hearing with the king but the king's got no choice or at least he sees no choice and so he puts him in the midst of a lion's den you ever been in a lion's den uh, me either with four footed ones but I've been in a lion's den with some two footed ones and some of them call themselves Christians and I tell you what when you get in the lion's den it's good for your prayer life I don't know what was going on with Daniel that night in the lion's den, but I'm guessing there was some pretty effective prayer going on. Daniel's prayers are effective. Nehemiah's prayers are effective. And here's something that they can't take away from you, church. Did you hear me? They can make rules and laws and say you can't pray, but they can't stop you from praying. We went to the Temple Mount when we were in Jerusalem. And uh, we got to the, go through the check stuff. Some of you have been there know what I'm talking about. You've got to get, go through all the security stuff because you move from the Israeli-occupied territory to Muslim-occupied territory at the top of the Temple Mount. And so as we emerged, they kind of laid out the rules. Uh, my wife had on a, a sleeveless kind of top like, like you're wearing right here. Modest but sleeveless. And immediately this old Muslim guy, cover up cover up you can't be up here dressed like that so I had to take off my jacket and she had to wear it's just a matter of making sure all the tourists know we're in charge now and then he would say to each each, as we moved by he'd say don't be praying on Temple Mount no prayers except to Allah no prayers on Temple Mount (laughs) 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 Woo! I saw that east gate where Jesus is going to come through someday and I started praying and he don't know it. Even the people in my group didn't know it. But I spent a lot of time praying on Temple Mount. He can't stop us from praying. Amen. They can't stop us. Even if you're marginalized, you can pray. 
And so we need to learn to pray effectively. We've been talking a lot in this session about the fact that I believe we have become a remnant. Many of you believe we are becoming a remnant. There's still some debate about where we are in the timeline. And so I have been saying to you, just in case I'm wrong, pray fervently for revival. What I'd like for us to do to close this session this morning is to pray together for revival in America. I want to be wrong. I want there to be a renewal and a revival so that we are not marginalized. Great God of the universe, God who made the heavens and the earth, God who loves us more than anything, God who is all-powerful, and Jesus, the only begotten Son of the Father, begotten, not made, very God of very God, who came to earth to die for our sins. Jesus, who died on the cross, was crucified, dead, and buried, but on the third day rose again. Jesus, who is the conqueror of the grave. Jesus, who is the God of life and death. Jesus, who is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, and Spirit, Spirit of the living God, Spirit that brings order out of chaos, Spirit that brings peace into the lives of those who believe. Great God in three persons, one God in three persons, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. We confess that we have not been an obedient church. We have failed to be salt. We have failed to represent you effectively in our communities, in our churches, in our homes, and in America at large. We've not been light, though you said to be salt and light. And yet, in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our sins, you've been good to us. America has opportunities that are available no other place in the world because you've given them sovereign God. We have freedoms that no one else knows or enjoys. We still can gather together at Bayshore Camp and pray together for renewal and revival. No other world, no other country across the world, around the world, uh, experiences the unparalleled freedoms that we have. And oh God, we have been a people of abundance. Perhaps that's our problem. You have given us abundance, great outpouring of your physical blessings are ours. You have given us a system of government that's unparalleled anywhere, anywhere in the world. You have allowed your chosen people, the Jewish people, to be harbored in America as they were exiled from their own land and from others. You have given abundant blessings to this great land. And so now, Lord, we pray that you might one more time hear our prayer and send a revival upon this land. Would you, God, bless us again with revival among our nation's leaders and in our nation's churches and in our hearts. Let that revival begin with me. Let that revival begin in this room. Let that revival begin at Bayshore Camp. And we shall give you praise and thanks. In the name of Jesus, amen.